This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 546, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hello, everyone. It is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. And um, before we jump into our topic today, I just want to update you on a couple other things. We are... um, the Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive, the European Jazz Intensive, our first annual European Jazz Intensive, is uh, still taking registrations. We're a little over half full now. We are filling up quick. Um, also, we're about ready to launch the 2020 Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive, uh, the New York version. I'm doing two of them in 2020. Uh, the European one is April, I think it's 14 through 18, in Usthofen, Germany. Um and uh, the your, the New York one, uh, we're not definite on the dates yet, but I believe they're going to be May 29th through June 1st, uh, right here at the Drummers Collective in New York City, where we, we've done it for the last four years. This will be year number five. So um, if you're interested in either of those, uh, we haven't officially opened registration yet for the New York event because it's not till June. But if you are interested in learning more about it and want to be on our advance notice list, shoot me an email. You can find all the information for both jazz intensives at the uh, podcast, sorry, <laughs> the clinics slash intensives tab at danielglass.com. All right, that's it for updates. Let's jump in. Today, I'm going to talk about a gig I've been doing for the last two years that is sort of an unlikely gig for a guy like me. And I think I wrote in the description of this. How does a jazz and swing drummer end up playing with one of the real housewives of New York who has a bunch of dance club hits? And how did this come to pass and what's it all about? So maybe some of you have seen, I've put up a little bit of stuff on social media about it. I've actually been doing the gig for uh, almost two years now. I think in March of 2020, it will be two years uh, or February. Um and it's a very interesting story, and I've told some stories about other types of gigs that I've done over the years, uh, other interesting places that I've found myself as a drummer. And this one is interesting because the lessons that we can learn from this are, A, you might not end up doing gigs that you thought you were going to be doing, and B, what happens when a gig presents itself, but maybe it's not what you think is is the right kind of gig or is not suited to you and see what kind of an attitude can you have walking into that gig and having an open mind and what can you take away from a gig like that that will help you to develop as a musician as a drummer so these are the things that I want to talk about today and I'll start by just giving a brief synopsis of of this gig now the artist that I've been working with her name is Luanne Deleceps, and uh, it's a fancy name. She was, is technically, or was a countess. She was married 
um, for a number of years to an actual, um, I think it's Italian, maybe Swiss, I think Italian count. So she actually did receive the title of countess. She's, she's herself is American. And um, she's a big reality show star. Now, a lot of you either who are obsessive musicians and don't watch TV very much or are men and don't watch Real Housewives shows probably aren't going to know who she is. However, um, you know, there are a lot of fans of the Real Housewives uh, shows out there. Of course, just as a means of introduction, the Real Housewives is a franchise of of uh, reality shows that take place in different cities. They were all created by a guy named Andy Cohen. And uh, it's kind of, you know, reality shows not at their best, shall we say. They're these, they, they put a bunch of uh, house, I mean, they're not really housewives. They're more, although most, I think all of them are moms, uh, but none of them really stay at home and take care of the house. That's just sort of a misnomer, but they're women. Um, some are married to famous men. Some are, you know, most are married to well, they're mostly from wealthy, from the wealthier side of town, you could say. Uh, so there's a real housewives of Atlanta, real housewives of, uh, Beverly Hills, real housewives of New Jersey, real housewives of Dallas. There's one in orange County, California. I'm sure there's a couple others that I'm leaving out, but the idea is sort of to throw these women together in a quote-unquote reality situation, and then generally what ends up happening is they <laughs> uh, tear each other's heads off, and uh, this makes for for great watching, right? Because people love love to see this happen. Um, so anyway, I, I don't think I'd ever seen any episodes of any of these reality shows, but um, Luann started to... Uh, come in to the gig I do at Birdland. And as I've mentioned, I've done a whole episode about about that gig. It's called Cast Party. It happens every Monday. In fact, I'm recording this on a Monday afternoon, so I'll be going to the gig in a few hours. And we never know who's going to come through the doors, and all kinds of people do. And it's uh, sort of called a Broadway cabaret type of a, of a gig, but we get all kinds of, of different folks. Uh, but mostly uh, people that are doing Broadway, Broadway show singers, stars of the Broadway shows, and there's a, quite a large cabaret scene in New York, and it's a pretty cool scene. You get to play a lot of different kinds of music, and it's um, it's great, and I'm in the house band. So anyway, uh, Luann came in a couple of times and sang a song, and um, then it we we I heard from Billy Stritch, who was our um, musical director of our of our house trio, the Monday Night House Trio, that... Um, she was interested in putting together a cabaret show of her own. She'd always loved uh, cabaret. She grew up, you know, spent a lot of time in New York. She, she grew up in Connecticut. But uh, she, um, you know, as, as something she'd always dreamt about was to put together her own cabaret-style show, which more than sort of a singing show where, where she would just get up and sing songs, although she does do that. There's, it's, a, it's like a variety show, and she has guests, and she, she modeled it after the Carol Burnett show, for those of you who are maybe of a slightly older age, um, and you would see Carol Burnett. There were comedy sketches and musical numbers and guests every week and, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, what I learned along the way is that she had several uh, dance club hits, uh, the most famous of which is a song called Money Can't Buy You Class. And so 
when I heard, you know, hey, she wants to hire the cast, the cast party house trio as her backing band, as the core of her backing band, I went and listened to a couple of these songs. And to be quite frank, I was sort of taken aback because, A, you know, most dance club music doesn't sound anything like a jazz trio. And B, most dance club music, to me, is somewhat repellent. <laughs> not a place where I want to go on a Saturday night is to a dance club to hear that kind of music, sort of EDM-based, all total drum machines and everything is sampled and all of that jazz. So I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, how are we going to make this work? What's going what's gonna to happen with this? And I was also a little, I don't know, wondering about, you know, she's a, a huge TV celebrity. She's, I should mention, she's been on The Real Housewives of New York since it started, which I think is, is 11 or 12 seasons ago. So, and it, The Real House, the New York franchise, I believe, is one of the more popular of The Real Housewife franchises. And since she's been on the whole time, she's extremely popular. So, it was like, okay, this is a cool opportunity, a chance to play with a celebrity, but what is the show really going to be about? So, we sort of jumped in and, um, you know, found out right off the bat that she really wanted it to be more like an acoustic kind of a thing. And so that gave us permission to approach her um, original material with a little bit more of a soulful edge or funky edge. Uh, and that's kind of how we started, the kernel of how that started to happen. So, you know, we start sort of rehearsing to put this thing together. And in the meantime, she has literally sent out one tweet that she was going to do, uh, you know, dip her toe in the water and do a show at a club in New York called 54 Below, which is in the basement of the old Studio 54 from back in the heydays of, of disco. Studio 54 was the most famous of the disco clubs back in the late 70s and early 80s. And the basement of this club, Studio 54, was where the most notorious, you know, there was a lot of sex and cocaine use and all kinds of crazy behavior going on at this at these places at that time. And the basement was sort of where the most sordid stuff happened. So over the years, that basement was transformed into a cabaret club. It's a beautiful, beautiful room. Michael Feinstein, the famous kind of one of the most famous cabaret, I guess you could say, um, and singers in, in America, he has sort of put his name on the club. So it's called Feinstein's 54 Below. And she had booked a night there, and all she did was literally put out one tweet, and the show sold out in two seconds, because the room only holds about 120 people. So, you know, we she booked a couple of these, and we went in, and um, it was interesting. She had each night, first of all, she had very smartly and adroitly hired a great director, in addition to hiring us as a great band, so we knew what we were, you know, what we were about. We were professionals. We've all played at that club many times. We've all backed up a lot of different kinds of singers, all different sorts and uh, every stripe under the sun. Um, but she'd booked a great di director, this guy named Ben Rimmelauer, who, um, fantastic, had a lot of experience at theater, had worked with people like Patti LuPone, and um, had, had worked under some very famous directors where he got his tutelage. And so he was able to kind of, she had a lot of ideas. She does have a lot of ideas, which is great. And able to kind of shape the, 
the show into something that had sort of a, an arc, a beginning, a middle, and an end, to build towards something. You know, those of you musicians out there know that if you're going to play a set of music, it needs to have, you can't just sort of randomly throw the songs together. You need to kind of tell a story with the songs and maybe start off energetically, then come down, you know, then come back up and put some contours on it. And then, of course, theoretically, at the end of your show, you're going to build to a climax of sorts, and that's what's going to get people coming back. It's a tried-and-true formula. It works in movies. It works in music. It works in television. It works. Uh, So, Ben began to shape this show, and we had a lot of Broadway guests, you know, come in, and um, it, uh, she had a comedian come in, uh, who's hilarious, who actually has been with us almost the whole time, uh, it's a, a really funny kind of old school borscht belt kind of cigar chomping, pencil mustachioed, middle aged, uh, you know, velvet tuxedo wearing comedian named Murray Hill. And the joke is that Murray Hill is a neighborhood in New York. So it's sort of like, you know, calling yourself Tad Pole. as your name. So, Murray Hill. So, there was a comedian. There were at least three or four guests, usually who were fantastic Broadway singers, top, top Broadway singers. They'd come up and sing a song. And, you know, Countess Luann is is gorgeous. She's a former supermodel, so she's statuesque. And she had just sort of cemented, as part of the whole arc of the show, she had connected with a design house, fashion house in New York, called Giovanni. And so, uh, you know, she would go off stage and she would change her outfit and come back and do some more shtick. And she would have, you know, usually a Broadway leading man, a very handsome leading man, tall, and who would, uh, you know, she would stay on stage and, and he would dance around with her. So, and then, you know, we we did play-ons and play-offs, which were based on on the the riff of one of her, um, this, this big hit of hers, Money Can't Buy You class. So, you know, I thought, well, this is this isn't bad. This is kind of a cool thing. And this certainly wasn't easy at the beginning. She did not have much experience on the stage. She was very nervous. She, you know, uh, was very much out of her element. And so, you know, getting her to be comfortable and to um, just be at ease, it, it was not happening so much at the very beginning. And, you know, there were other... <laughs> Other issues, she had been, she had gone through a very rough period in her life, had uh, had a second marriage, and I, I feel like I can say these things because all of this was part of the arc of the show. Um, actually, before, it had all kind of gone down right before we started working with her. So, she had had a, a terrible second marriage that was sort of, I don't know if you want to say a rebound from the first one, but it didn't work out, and there was infidelity, and alcohol use and abuse and all kinds of stuff. So she was in a bit of a rocky place when we started and was kind of having a rough time with it. But that said, you know, everybody really pulled together and things started to really come alive. And, you know, I think all of us in the band sort of wondered if this thing was really going to take off or, you know, what was exactly going to happen? Were we going to be able to put something together that was meaningful? Um, and the, uh, the, the fans were there. So what ended up happening was after the first couple of shows, she booked five nights each month for three months. I think this was like April, May, and June of 2018. And again, they just like put out 
one tweet and five shows sold out. It, it was insane. And the craziest thing about this whole experience, I should say, were her fans. And her fans were, they are fanatical, you know. Uh, it is unbelievable how they completely just freak out. It's like Springsteen at the Forum or something when she, when she hits the stage. And uh, so that was fun. And just, it's, again, it's not really my scene per se. <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, but, but that's cool. And, and they partied hard and they were having a great time at these club shows. So, you know, we started to, to put things together and there was a script and um, we started doing these kind of fun little medleys. And then she started uh, telling stories from her diary. So she, you know, they're, they're, they're all true events that happen, and a lot of them relate to what's gone on in the show during all the previous seasons. So, um, so in any case, um, I guess the, the point I wanted to make at, at this point, and, and to relate back to some of what I was talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, is that this really gave me an opportunity to start playing a type of music that I don't play very often as a drummer, and that that is four on the floor disco music, basically. I mean, it's basically like skets, you know, that sort of a thing. And um, it, it gave me an opportunity to work with the bass player, who is my bass player at, at Cast Party. We work together every Monday, and we also so often work together much more than that with a variety of different artists. And a chance to do to do the same with Billy for us as a unit as a trio to kind of go outside our comfort zone and begin to try to really develop um, this sort of disco style of music and I what's really cool about it as I mentioned sort of unintended consequences what's happened is that I started to develop just the basic disco beat which I started with which isn't that hard to play per se but I started to really dig into the nuances adding some bass drum variations and taking that offbeat feel on the hi-hat. One, two, three, cats, And putting lots of variations in. Um, and as, as things grew and grow they did, we, um, we started, it was in holiday season of 2018, so about a year ago from when I'm recording this podcast, which is right around New Year's between 2019 and 2020. Um, she decided to book a show at a bigger venue and we were going to do some holiday material. So I think starting in late November into December, suddenly she books the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. She books the Paramount Theater and out in Huntington, Long Island. These are all 1,500, 2,000 seat venues. Boom. They sell out like crazy. Fans are going bananas. And so Starting at the beginning of 2019, this year that's now coming to a close, we started playing out, well, we did last year as well, but it was a lot more club shows. This year, we took it to much larger venues, and as we did that, I started to be able to have a rider where I requested my gear, you know, the DWs that I would want, because at 54 Below, they have a house kit, it's not a DW, and because of the size of the room, I couldn't really lay into it the way that that music would mandate. So I would now could, you know, create a list of all the gear that I wanted 
And one of the things I did that I'd always dreamed about doing was I set up a second snare drum and I, I got, uh, in addition to my regular cymbal setup, I just used a four piece kit, uh, 22, 13, 16, but I got a, uh, a, I requested a six and a half brass snare, a very, very big, heavy drum as for use as my main snare, and then a five by 14 uh, wood snare as my second snare, which I put on the hi-hat side, as you do. So not only did it have a different pitch, but I, I was really inspired to play with the idea of treating the drum with a cymbal. So I started with an eight-inch splash, and then I said, no, let's, let's go up to ten, because one time they didn't have an 8, and they included a 10, and I tried it, and I really, that seemed to be the magic size. And what I would do is I would tape one side of that cymbal to the the hoop, the rim of the drum, and then the other side was free to just move, you know, to flop, so the cymbal wasn't taped completely down. And I developed, you know, a technique that a lot of people use nowadays, but hitting the cymbal, sort of a rim shot where you hit the cymbal and the rim, so you're sort of hitting a rim shot and you're hitting the cymbal all at once. And the sound effect you get from that is kind of like an electronic clapping sound. So on some of these dance club tunes, you know, say during the verse section, I would break things down and I would play on that second snare. And it was really cool. And then, you know, along with adding those different kind of sounds, I really explored a, the six and a half brass snare routine, which again, as a guy that you know, as a jazz and swing drummer. I mean, I, I, I could use heavy, heavier metal drums, but if I'm going to play jazz, I got to tune them way up. So started messing around with tuning the drums way down, tuning the toms way down, which again is something I don't do uh, in my natural habitat, um, and experimenting with different sizes and heavinesses of cymbals, because in order to get the cymbals to project when you're playing hard, um, and there was... In all fairness, we almost always had some jazzy, swingy stuff, but it would, in general, uh, the guests would bring like pop ballads, and and Luann's material itself was was you know heavy, uh, like this kind of dance club disco thumping uh, sort of a vibe. So um, it gave me the opportunity to like something that people might write off. Oh, it's just a disco beat it gave me the opportunity to really start digging in and working on, say, different bass drum techniques that I've been teaching my students who are rock drummers. And I've been, you know, a lot of people think that because I'm a jazz and swing player that if you come to me to study, the only thing you're going to learn is jazz and swing. And I want to say that I I couldn't be farther from the truth. Yes, a lot of my students want to learn jazz or already do play jazz or, or swing type music, but a lot of them are as rock as it gets. And it's, you know, the technique that I'm teaching them is applicable without a doubt to those styles of music. And there's certain bass drum stuff that I've been teaching that I really got a chance again on this gig um, with, with Luann to really work on sort of eighth note combinations. So against the disco beat, you know, and come up with some real cool sounding stuff, very simple, but very melodic and very rhythmic, um, where the bass drum is sort of carrying the melodic side against the consistent 
of the of the hi hat and the snare. Um, so it's it you know it's that part of it has just been fantastic, being able to really explore this whole different side of myself musically, and that never would have happened had I not kind of gotten this gig. And it's sort of like, you know, should I be embarrassed about having this gig because it's not cool? It's not a cool hipster jazz gig. Should I be you know ashamed that I'm doing it because it's with a reality show? Um, you know, thing, and that's very lowbrow for the type of culture that I normally uh, engage in, you know. So, I mean, these are kind of questions I sort of asked myself a little bit at the beginning, but I've never been one to get in the way of a great gig opportunity regardless. For those of you that have heard some of my podcasts about Royal Crown Review, sort of the same situation. I mean, I was not thinking about historical kinds of music when I moved to L.A., to become a professional drummer in 1991. I was not thinking, oh, I'm going to get into, you know, historical styles of music and write books about this and become the guy that's, that is known in the industry as the guy that's going to teach us all about the history and evolution of the art form. I wasn't interested in that at all. But when the Royal Crown Review gig presented itself, I saw the writing on the wall. There were lines around the block at the Derby every week, and the band was touring and traveling all over the place. And, you know, I certainly wasn't I was going to make it work uh, because, man, a successful gig is a successful gig. And, you know, so in, interestingly, and, and then I thought, well, you know, is this gig going to be a drag? Am I going to not have fun doing this because I don't know all the jokes from all the housewife shows and I can't necessarily relate to the crowd that much and, you know, and I'm a side man and all this kind of stuff. But none of that ever really came up for me. I instead have had a great great time on the band. And I have to say that, you know, I've, I have been a sideman on a lot of different gigs, obviously all over New York, working with many, many artists. And I've been on the road with some acts like Brian Setzer as a sideman uh, and, and, and others. And, you know, it's always of concern when you commit, when you're out, you're traveling, you're, you're t- time away from your, your family. Because this year, I'd say with Luann, we've probably done 60 gigs, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's, you know, divided by, I'd say maybe even more like 70 or 80, because we've been out at least about 10 days a month. So that's more like 120 gigs. I'd say more like 100 gigs. And, you know, that's a significant of time to be away um, if you make the majority of your income being in town and being away from my wife and, you know, traveling is is glamorous and cool especially when you're young but when you've done it a lot now the idea of getting up at four in the morning to get to the airport on time and stressing and running through the airport and traveling and not getting much sleep and you know doing a bunch of nights in a row all those things you got to really i anyway think twice about before i jump in with that especially with an artist that you know working with artists, and I've talked about being a sideman and being a leader. I had a podcast about that. But it, it can be very tough being a sideman. You have no power over what's going on. You're, you know, you you have no idea really if you're going to mesh with the artist. You don't know how the artist is. They could turn around and fire you for no reason, and that's happened to me, and I've seen that happen to a lot of other people. Excuse me, I'm just sipping some tea. So, you know, you might, there's always that. And in the end, it's actually been a really wonderful experience. Um, Luann 
you know, I had some trepidations about, is she going to be like this character on TV where she's horrible to everybody and tearing everybody apart and is a diva and all that kind of stuff. And um, I have to say that those kind of nightmares really haven't come true at all. And what I learned, which is very interesting, is that being, you know, although she is, her persona on the show is of a very wealthy woman who was married to a count, and you think she's like, you know, one of these, you know, rich biatches, et cetera, et cetera, which definitely the show works that angle. In reality, she was one of seven children. Um, I think she was the only girl of seven children, and she was the youngest, so she had all these older brothers. They grew up in a house in Connecticut, in a poor part of Connecticut that had one bathroom. And again, I'm not revealing anything because this is all part of part of the show. I learned this from her, what we do in the show every night. Um, but she's real down to earth, and she's real... She's very professional. She, you know, I will say she's not the world's greatest singer. She's not, uh, you know, uh, Ariana Grande or something, you know, but it's almost, she has the greatest attitude about it. And she isn't, isn't there to be a singer. She's there to be herself. And as she has grown into the role, into the show, she's become more comfortable. Her delivery has just gotten better and better all the time. She's um, really in her element. She's, you know, with her fans and she knows how to deliver what it is that they want. And so it's, it's really great to watch someone who is really good at what they do and to watch her in particular in the last two years really grow into it. And she's just been really down with us. She's, you know, obviously, um, she has her stuff. She has to do a lot of press and interviews. And um, when we're in New York, there's always a lot of, you know, fancy people backstage. So we don't get much one-on-one time with her. But when we're on the road, uh, we were just in Tulsa. And um, after the gig, we had a great little after-show hang in her dressing room. And we just futz around and listen to music and tell stories. And she's as down-to-earth as they come. And she's very appreciative of you know, what we have brought to the show and to help to make it successful because the show, you know, has a top level New York band and the performers that sit in are really great at what they do. Um, And that, you know, makes it easy for her to do what she does. And she doesn't have to worry about drama from anybody else. She's, she's got, you know, she's got, we've got her back, so to speak. So it's turned into a wonderful thing. And I don't know really how long it will last. Um, These things you never know. Is there going to be an arc where, you know, the people that love her are going to come see the show and then that's it? We'll see. Um, I've I've already been, I've had my expectations, you know, uh, uh, surpassed time and again by her at her inventiveness, her um, connectedness with the crowd, her ability to come up with really great new creative ideas. And she already has another show uh, that she's going to do that is based on a kind of a running gag in the Real Housewives thing. And so, you know, uh, I'm hopeful that this new version of the show will get these folks to come out again and see it the second time around. And we'll keep hitting new markets and we'll keep the train rolling because, you know, I it's now the type of gig where I say, wow, this is actually kind of rare in the business that you get a gig like this as a sideman, where it's fun, it's, you know, 
not a huge amount of pressure because we all know what we're doing and we do it well. And we've kind of got the show under our, our fingers and we can tell from the audience's response, you know, that we're doing a good job and we're working for a cool employer. It pays well, by the way, you know, which (laughs) as we all know, that doesn't always happen, especially when you're, you know, more working in, in the level of a club. Um, and it's fun. And, the audience is cheering. And uh, I like that, you know, as opposed to say wedding bands where the audience is not necessarily paying much attention or you're playing in a sports bar and then you're competing with TV screens or, you know, even a, a Broadway show, you're in a pit and you're kind of a nameless, faceless character in black that nobody sees. I prefer when I perform that I can see my audience, that they can see me and that I can do what I do and be appreciated for it, whether it's, you know, playing a classic rock gig or playing uh, at, at, at Birdland, a jazz gig with Gunhild Carling or playing in a theater somewhere with, or performing arts center with, with Luann Deliceps. So in any case, I, I think I'll leave it there today. Um, I've New Year's Eve is tomorrow and I've got two gigs. Well, I've got a late gig tonight and two gigs tomorrow night an early and a late show. And then I'll be doing five nights after that with Marilyn May, the artist that I'm doing New Year's with. So I got a lot on my plate gig-wise, and I'm teaching every day, of course, and I'm making these podcasts for you. And I really just want to say, since it's the end of the year, I want to say thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast, who's given me so much great feedback, uh, who is inspired by what I'm saying. And, you know, keep the ideas coming, keep the feedback coming, because the more I know you're out there, the more I will uh, continue to do these and share my thoughts in this crazy world of music that in which we live, in which we operate. Uh, so, thanks again, and I'll see you next time on the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. <laughs>